Well, greetings, church. Oh, man, you guys are hurting, aren't you? <laughs> well, Happy New Year. And those of you listening online, we're glad you're here, too. Uh, today, like I said earlier, we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 17. And besides welcoming in a new year is something we have in common, there's something else that most of us have in common in this room. And it's probably not what you think. It's the fact that all of us were teenagers. Now, for those of you around my age, aren't you glad we didn't have social media? Yes, you are, aren't you? Because, you know, when you post things, they're on there forever. And so a lot of us, uh, God was very merciful, and we didn't have social media. But rather than pick on myself today, I thought I'd pick on someone else I love a lot in my family, and that's my son. And so I want to share a couple things about this teenage boy of mine, who's now a grown man with two daughters. <clears throat> Once upon a time, we were in Alaska, and I've shared this story once before, but it's just too good not to share again. And I was coming home from work, and we lived on an island called Kodiak, and it wasn't uncommon to have winds over 100 miles an hour for a couple weeks. It wasn't even newsworthy. That was just life on the island. And as I was coming home, I saw a kid on top of a streetlight pole in our neighborhood doing the Karate Kid little front kick switch. And I was like, what? A goofball. As I got closer, I realized that goofball was our son. Now, I would love to say there was a bunch of friends egging him on and they were filming it, but he was by himself. It was windy, it was rainy, and so I thought rather than yell at him, I would just pull up and say, hey, how you doing, son? He was like, hi, dad. Again, not a clue that possibly his life's in jeopardy 30 feet up in the air on the rainy, windy day. And I said, why don't you slide on down and uh, let's have a talk. He's like, okay, dad. And so he slides down. And so I discussed to him that, you know, it was possible he could have broke his neck and died. He's like, shrugged it off. He's like, okay, again, 14. So teenage boys, believe it or not, if you're a teenage girl here today, teenage boys, mm, they have issues. And so they're still learning. So beware, ladies. <clears throat> but yeah, I'm not picking on uh, certain people visiting either. And so, but listen to this. You know what's pretty cool? is that same teenage son of ours that sometimes would lose his mind and do some goofy stuff. He did something really cool one time too. When we moved here, and I would say he was very frustrated because he was moved during his senior year where he's a big wrestler, football star, and we transplanted him to Northern Virginia. But he started volunteering in access ministry at Tyson's and he brought both his little sisters along. And he had such a huge heart to serve the families there and that influenced his little sisters to serve and be a part of the staff at our church working in access ministry also. And so that same little boy that was doing high kicks on a streetlight pole and losing his brain, uh, God also used him to influence his own little sisters to serve in the church. And I believe make a difference in the kingdom of God. And so today, the reason I bring up a teenager is we're going to take a look at probably one of the most famous teenagers in the Bible. And so if you are present today and you're a teenager, realize this, God can use you and he can use you in a mighty way. And so let's take a look at King David when he was just a teenage boy. Now the Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, 1 through 3, <clears throat> excuse me, that the armies of the Philistines and the armies of Israel stood on the sides of two mountains with a valley in between them. You take a look at this picture. This is one of the better ones I had from our trip over there in 2014. You at least get a kind of a, a glimpse of the terrain there. So nothing spectacular, but that is the valley that's before you. Now, most likely, each side was preparing for battle when something odd happened. In verse 4, we read, 
And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now this is nine feet nine inches. So I would say a rather large individual. And notice his challenge to the armies of Israel and ultimately to the God of Israel. Starting in verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. And if he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. After he made this challenge, how do you suppose the people of God responded? We don't have to wonder. Verse 11, when Saul, who was head and shoulders taller than anybody else in that army, and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 16 tells us Goliath did this every morning and evening for 40 days with no takers. Now notice between verses 11 and 16, there's like a little side story taking place. David is quietly serving behind the scenes. Being the youngest of eight brothers, his job was to tend the sheep while the three oldest brothers went off to war. We already know David was anointed in front of his father and his brothers to be the next king of Israel. But apparently David's dad wasn't that impressed because he still had him tending the sheep and running errands. Now if David was like most boys, he longed to see the battle. And thankfully his daddy, Jesse, said, you know what, bring some brothers, bring your brothers some vittles from home. That's my paraphrase. And in verse 18, we see that Jesse is telling David to take 10 cheeses to the commander and see if the brothers are well. Bring home a token from them as well. Now, I will tell you, as someone who served for almost three decades in the military, care packages can be interesting when you receive them, especially when you're younger, because rarely do you get to enjoy any of the things that your loved ones send you. The boss usually has you open them in front of everybody else, and if there's love notes in there, you get to read them out loud. And if your mom sends you something, well, that's extra special. And I will tell you <clears throat> that this may have been something similar as David brought these gifts. It probably did embarrass his brothers, and we'll find out later his brothers were not very excited to see him. But imagine how disappointed David must have been when he arrived at the battle site with no battle going on at all. Instead, it was a one-way shouting match. As David looked across the valley, I'm sure that nine-foot-nine uh, giant looked like the Incredible Hulk in shiny armor. Picture Goliath standing there shaking his fist at the nation of Israel, calling them cowards, saying, send someone to fight me, morning and night for 40 days. Now picture David and something unusual at the end of verse 23. And David heard him. How did the others respond from the taunt of the giant? Verse 24 tells us, And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. Pretty slow thinkers at this point, aren't you? Thinking that for 40 days this guy keeps saying this. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, tax-free. 
And in verse 26, we hear from David for the first time in the Bible. And the first time he speaks, he asks two questions. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Even with the reward of riches, marrying the king's daughter, which would have made him a victor, or a victor and a royal, and no taxes for the person's family for life. There were still no takers. Now to be fair, what good are all these riches if you're dead? Here's one of the problems. The people of Israel were looking at the situation from a human perspective. Just like I was trying to illustrate for the children, they were, according to God's word, terrified about Goliath. But notice David viewed the giant through the eyes of Almighty God. You might say the men of Israel thought Goliath was too big to hit. David thought he's too big to miss. David then runs into his big brother, and his brother scolds him for coming to view the battle and chides him for leaving the sheep. Of course, big brother does not seem to be embarrassed for the lack of battle taking place. Then there is no doubt that David's brother has some lingering jealousy over Samuel's rejection of him and anointing little David as well to be the future king of Israel. Now here we can observe another problem. It is expected to receive taunts and obstacles from those outside of God's church and his army. But it must sadden the Lord when his own people try to get in the way of his work, when he calls his people to get a job done. But not being deterred by this, David presses on, and before long, he stands before King Saul. Saul dismisses David as a youth with no military experience. David tells the king that God allowed him to defeat a lion and a bear, and God will deliver him from this Philistine as well. Now here's another principle. Often God will prepare us in private before he sends us out to do battle in public. We see this in Scripture not only with David, but also with our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus did battle with Satan in the wilderness privately for 40 days before he launched his public ministry. So take heart and know God will not waste your private training. In his perfect timing, he will launch you for what he has prepared you for. And as you know, David sets off to fight Goliath with only a sling and five stones, armed with the power of God, he won the victory, killing Goliath and cutting his head off with the giant sword. Now every time I read this story, I can't help but think, of an 80s song from Carmen. Any Carmen fans out there today? All right, one. All right, two. All right, you guys are with me. I'm hoping after I share this verse with you that I'll lure you in to be Carmen fans as well. He had a humorous way of teaching the Bible. Here we go. Little David must have been in his teens when he faced Goliath of the Philistines. He was armed with just a slingshot and some stones. Now Goliath was a giant and strong as a tank, and when he looked at men, their stomachs sank. And there stood little David all alone. With faith in God, he flung his sling, and much to their surprise, he killed that monster with a stone that nailed him between the eyes. Then decapitated his fallen foe and made sure he was dead and showed everyone there he was someone who knew how to get ahead. Think about it. And then the chorus is awesome. God don't care what the circumstance he just wants your faith and trust in him. He don't want some big old song and dance. He just wants you to put your faith and trust in him. Okay. 
I know by now some of you are thinking, wow, happy New Year's to you too, Todd. This is weird. But I want to encourage you, there is so much more in this story than just a battle between a teenage boy and a giant. What is the main lesson to learn in David's victory over Goliath? I like how one commentator answered this. Contemporary audiences love to use this as an analogy about the underdog. No matter the odds, you can do it. Just believe in yourself. Christians are as prone as anyone to fall prey to this sort of interpretation. Baptizing it with spiritual language. If you trust God, he will give you victory over all the giants in your life. Cancer, a lousy job, a broken relationship. Just claim your victory and God will give it to you. Sadly, this misses the point. Where we go wrong in interpreting this story is when we identify ourselves with David. Believe it or not, you and I are not David in this story. Instead, we are the helpless nation of Israel cowering in our tents. Kind of stings, doesn't it? We all want to be David, but we're not. If you recall the beginning of the story, Goliath suggests each side present a champion to fight on behalf of each nation. This is called representative warfare. David has no issue with this because he understands that the battle is between his living God and a false dead God. When David wins, the entire nation of Israel shares in the victory, even though they did nothing to deserve it. Do you realize every man, woman, boy, and girl standing here today is in a similar situation as Israel? We need a champion to save us from the giant of sin that separates us from a holy God. This is everyone's greatest problem, and there's nothing we can do about it. To be more blunt, there's nothing any of us in our own desire even want to do with this. But thankfully, God knew this, and that's why he sent his son Jesus to be our champion. One definition of champion says this, someone who fights on behalf of another, and that's our King Jesus. The Bible makes it very clear that God desires each one of us to be with him. And as I pointed out, our sin separates us from a holy God. And to make matters worse, we all know this. You've heard me say it time and time again. Sins cannot be removed by good deeds. Though we fight and we toil and we work, we cannot earn our way to heaven. The Bible makes it clear. And that's why God sent his son that we talked about last week on Christmas Eve to be born in that manger to live a perfect life and to die in your place and to die in mine. And then God raised him from the dead three days later to show he has power over the grave. And the best news of all is everyone, everyone who places their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can have eternal life. And that eternal life can begin today. That's the good news and that's what our champion did for each one of us. Now, warfare is a key element in the spiritual experience of every believer. And sometimes when I visit with Christians, they find this a little disturbing. Our adversary, the devil, is a roaring lion, and he does seek to destroy and devour. Today, warfare is not a common language for every Christian, and yet I would argue that it should be. We need to be familiar with Ephesians 6. We need to know that there is a spiritual war taking place all around us. We need to know how to put on the whole armor of God, and we also need to know how to use the weapons of God. One of those weapons is the Bible. Today, let me encourage you to start the Bible reading plan. We have started a new year. 
The 2023 plan is on the website. You can go grab it. Genesis 1 and Matthew 1 today. I promise you it'll be one of the best ways to utilize your time. Study the Bible so you know God's word, to know God's promises so you can claim them, so you can pray God's word. It is so rich. There is too much at stake to remain unarmored and weaponless on the battlefield today. I've shared in the past in some membership interviews a fictitious story about a movie of Navy SEALs, something near and dear to my heart. And I said, imagine you're watching 16 guys and they've been just given a warning order which tells them, hey, you're about to go to war. This is the equipment you need. Get on the helicopter and let's go get some. Now, what I ask the people when they're watching this movie is, would you be concerned if only two of the guys grabbed weapons and body armor and jumped on that helicopter while the other 14 in that platoon stayed back to watch? And without hesitation, every man and woman I've told this to said, that's ridiculous. Why would they not go to war? I'm like, you're right. It's ridiculous. And yet, this is the problem of the church today. We have so many men and women who are very happy to watch others go on the battlefield, not realizing they're on the battlefield too. They're just not participating. We need every man, woman, boy, and girl in the church to put on the armor of God, to grab those weapons, and to go to war. There are casualties that are taking place all around us each and every day. We need to step up, and we need to rise up and wake the church up and get back on the battlefield. The stakes are too high. Now consider a few lessons that we can learn from this amazing passage as we wrap up. The real giant in our lives has been defeated, and it is sin and death. For those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you don't need to be afraid of death. I've shared a sobering stat before, but it's worth sharing again. And I got some doctors in here who back me up. One out of one die. There you go. You're with me now. It's sobering, but it's true. But did you know, you can know for sure that you can have eternal life? The Bible says so. 1 John 5.13 is a passage I share with many people in hospice care. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Even first century Christians had doubts. And yet, you want to have a faith that isn't a hope so, or I think so, but a no so kind of faith. And you can have that when you place your faith and trust in what Jesus has done, and not your own works. Don't be ridiculous, right? I wouldn't bet on the best five minutes I've ever lived to get me into heaven, and I hope you don't either. You want to place your faith and trust in what Jesus Christ has done. When we understand this, we can echo what the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I had the privilege over the past five and a half years to walk alongside a lady named Eleanor. Some of you know her by name. I met her mom and dad at the altar some time ago with tears in their eyes when their daughter in her early 30s was given two months to live. And they were like, could you come over and pray with our daughter? And I was like, well, of course I can. As I'm driving over there, I'm praying. And I will tell you, even though I've been around death and lots of hard things, there's nothing easy about going to a home who has a child that they're going to lose. And as I sat and listened to Eleanor, I realized I'm in the presence of a woman who understands Philippians 121. She already knows the Lord. She has a little girl. 
Her desire is to live and to beat cancer. And yet she was ready to go home if the Lord called her. And I asked her, I said, could I capture your story to share it with the church? She said, of course. Years go by and God was faithful to allow Eleanor to live a little bit longer and another year and another year through very difficult surgeries and treatments. But just a few months ago, God brought her home. And I remember talking to Eleanor the day before. Here was a woman who fought so bravely and had withered away to where she did not want to be seen anymore in public or even in private. And she basically was asking me if she was being a coward to say she wanted to die. It broke my heart. But I said, Eleanor, you are not being a coward. You fought so valiantly. If you're tired and you're ready to go home, go home. You know Philippians 121. And she said, I'm tired, Pastor. I'm ready to go home. She died that day. It was almost like she wanted permission to go. And her husband and little girl are doing great. But the reason I bring it up is here was a woman who did not fear death, and she understood who she was in Christ. And that's my hope for each and every one of you, that you don't fear death, that you know who you are in Jesus Christ. Now, I suspect not everyone listening has the same confidence as Eleanor. And if you're honest with yourself, you might even say you have no confidence or courage at all. Many today have mastered looking put together when they come through the doors of the church. But on the inside, they're barely hanging on. I've shared before that when we share our struggles, our sorrows are divided. And when we share our joys, they're multiplied. And I'm thankful that many of you in this congregation do just that. It's a blessing to hear wonderful things that are going on in your lives. And that gets multiplied. But it is also very important to me as a pastor and to the other men and women in this church when you share your struggles so that we can take that burden from you. So many people struggle in silence and they don't share the hurts they're going through. That is not what we're designed to do as the body of Christ. I also don't want to minimize the pain and fear some of you have. For I know it is real, and I've been there too. For some, you long to have a spouse, someone to love. For others, you're scared your marriage will collapse. Then there are others who fear for their children as the world closes in on them. Still others struggle with fear that they will never have children. Many men and women struggle with addiction and lack the courage to open up about past mistakes and take ownership for the hurt caused. In other words, real life is hard, and it hits each and every one of us. Yet, when we are in Christ, we no longer have to fear any of these things. For the child of God can rest in the promise. Think about Romans 8.31. 31 through 39 is one of my favorite passages, but listen to just this one verse. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? To be clear, this courage from God does not mean we will never have trouble. With proper perspective, though, we can learn courage is not the absence of fear and strife. Instead, courage comes from a security that we know that fear cannot take away. That security is Jesus Christ. Now, if you're visiting today, you probably figured out by now that I'm a country boy. So I want to quote one of the greater theologians out there, and I use that term loosely. But John Wayne spoke of courage, and he said, courage is being scared to death and saddling up anyway. For the man and woman that has Jesus Christ as their Savior, you can saddle up anyway and have courage because Jesus is your Lord and Savior. If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? This is the proper perspective. Years ago, I came back from Africa and I brought my wife to California. And we had a little, uh, I guess, probably one of the best weeks of our life. And we had a lot of fun. But one of the things that I did to court my wife was to get a hot air balloon ride. And so I got that backer basket of wicker, silk, and fire, you know, all the things that make for disasters to show up in the ER, right? And we met 4 a.m., we get up in this hot air balloon ride. And you may see a picture here of kind of like one of the observation points. But as we get up to a certain altitude, God kind of spoke to me there in that special moment that I was having my wife. I realized when I was looking down at all those homes, they all looked the same. And I thought, we spend our whole lives worrying about these tiny little things. At a certain altitude, you can't tell what type of car someone's driving. You can't tell if that car is worth $1,000 or $100,000. You don't know if that home's 1,000 square feet or 10,000 square feet. They're just stuff. And yet, and I'm guilty of this as much as anyone, if we're not careful, we can start looking through the eyes of man and thinking we need more stuff to be happy, to be satisfied, etc., etc. But if we could see things through God's eyes, I almost wonder what the angels think sometimes. If they're looking down and going, they're missing the whole point. They're spending their whole lives chasing after these tiny little things. Don't they know how big our God is? I would also encourage you today, if you feel like you've got a big problem, don't limit Almighty God. If anything, that's like a slap in the face. Do not look at your problem and think God can't handle it. We serve and love a big God. And whatever you're going through, He can handle. Let me close our time with what God has placed on my heart for Prince William in 23. If you've been at this location for a few years, you might know that we are a group of believers trying to live out Matthew 22 by loving God and loving others. Do we do it perfectly? No way. But we are striving to do just that. In 2017, we had a gospel conversation challenge, and I put before the church that I feel like God is challenging us to have 7,000 conversations. And everybody looked at me like I was crazy. By the end of the year, we had over 11,000 conversations. I believe it was 11,224. But Either way, we had those conversations and 200 people came to know Jesus Christ. Now, this year, I believe I have another challenge that will help us live out Matthew 22. I'm going to ask each of you, if you have a smartphone and you're part of this congregation, to download an app. And certainly if you're not, this is still a good app to have. But it's an app called Life in Six Words. You should be able to see a picture of it up there. So you can kind of see what it looks like. Life in six words. Keith and I, a good friend of ours, Greg Steer, we worked with for years, uh, has put this app together in multiple languages. It's a simple way to share the gospel, and there's so much value in it. But we're going to have a group, and the group code will be on this next picture for you. And it's, you know, forgive the, uh, the military verbiage here, but to help you see the letters in case you can, it's Whiskey Victor Hotel Papa 87. So that's the code. If you want to join this app, and what it will allow us to do is we can track our gospel conversations together. We can challenge each other to share the gospel and so much more. We're going to hold an evangelism and discipleship boot camp on 14 January from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. right here. 
I want to further equip each one of you so that you can get on that spiritual battlefield. Along with evangelism, I'm also going to ask every follower of Christ to step up and make one disciple in the year 23. One disciple. That's what I'm asking. Think about it. We quote the Great Commission at the close of every gathering when we worship our Lord. Yet, if we were to raise our hands and say who is actually making disciples, I'm betting it's going to be a pretty small percent. So rather than lament about that, come to the boot camp training and learn how to share your faith and make disciples. You can register online today on our classes page. I'll also say that I've learned this. And as I gaze out here, I see men and women who are kind of in the rank and file waiting to be discipled. Here's the problem we have in the church, not just at Prince William, but at all locations, and I would argue across the United States. For a young person, it's super awkward to go up to someone who's older and say, would you disciple me? It just is. But guess what, younger people? It is really awkward for older people to come to you and say, hey, guess what? I want to disciple you. And so I've been doing my best to broker this, but at the end of the day, this is what I've discovered. I can get a big list of people that want to be discipled, but very few people sign up to make disciples. And I will argue that every one of you, as a follower of Christ, can make disciples. You do not have to have this massive inventory. As I look out here, and I'll just, I'll use my wife as an example. I have to spur her on often and say, honey, you would be awesome at this. And so when she does meet with women, they treasure her time. I'm like, good grief, you do not have to have all these sheepskins on the wall. You're a lady that's survived and put up with a guy for 37 years. That in itself is valuable. You can give some pretty good tips there. But you also survived three teenagers, and now you're a grandma with a fifth grandchild on the way. You have things to share on how God has equipped you. And so I want to encourage you, rather than sit in the background and go, oh, I'm just not good enough. I don't know what to do. Come to this boot camp. Let us equip you to make disciples and to share your faith. And believe it or not, once you join in, you'll discover that you were made to do this. It'll be some of the happiest days in your life. And I realize for some of the young parents that are staying at home and they're just knee deep in children, that is your disciple battleground at this time. But there are some women that I've met over the years that have incredible bandwidth, and just because they have children at home does not mean they can't disciple another woman. So let the Lord lead you in that. We all need to step up and share our faith and to make disciples. And as we journey together by making disciples, please know the best place to live this out is in a church group. Many of you are in church groups. Some of you are still not. If you're not in a church group, the best way I can describe it is you are missing out. It is a place to come together and be encouraged by fellow believers. And we all need biblical community, community, and it's taking place in our church groups. We'll start promoting them individually next week. Feel free to check out our website and explore the ones that are existing already. Maybe there's one in your neighborhood where you can join in. All right, back to our passage and we'll wrap up. I've learned this from David and Goliath and many other passages as well from God's Word. God wants to use his people to magnify his great name to all the nations of the earth. This purpose was pictured in the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, in God's choice of the people in Israel in Deuteronomy 28, the parting of the Red Sea to let Israel out, and the opening of the Jordan River to let them cross into Canaan. Bore witness to all the nations that Israel's God was the one true God. 
Our mission is to glorify God in his great name. There is a formula God often uses. Takes what the world would call insignificant or ordinary and does extraordinary things with that person. The result brings glory to God himself. Remember, David was a young shepherd boy who took down a giant. This was a supernatural victory only explained by God. Hudson Taylor said, all giants have been weak men. And they did great things for God because they reckoned on his being with them. The Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, taught the same principle in 1 Corinthians. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. It's been said there are people who make things happen, people who watch things happen, and people who don't even know something is happening. May we be a people who allow God to work in and through us to make things happen, to glorify his great name. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this familiar story. And I pray it does challenge our hearts today to realize that we are not David. And there's so much more here in typology of him representing the Lord and so many other things that I'd love to share. But Father, I pray that you would encourage your people today to step up, to share their faith, to make disciples and to get involved in a church group and to do life together. Father, we need you and we certainly need each other. And so I pray that we would be a church that would step out on mission and live to glorify your great name. Father, I pray hearts are encouraged and challenged, and I pray that you receive all the honor and glory as we continue to worship you now. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.